Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Jenna Kelly as she explores the lasting psychological and emotional bonds between individuals. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network and join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. Hey there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly, and I'm really excited to share this next interview with you where I sit down with Karen Andor. She's an educational psychologist and psychotherapist who has a private practice in the UK. She's also worked as a specialist support teacher in South Africa, and in her time as a teacher, she was working with a population that was very under-resourced, and she had to learn how to develop tools, practical tools to help children that had special needs. And so she's continued to take that philosophy into her work where she's now developed these other tools to help fill another gap, which is around understanding childhood dissociation. So she she's going to break this down for you all in a way that is very nuanced, but also easy to digest. I know she really opened up my eyes on this topic. And then she's going to share some a case and some tools and things that she's used. So if you're listening to this, I highly encourage you to also check this out on our YouTube channel, because she's going to show us the therapy dolls that she's created that help give language language and understanding to the different parts that are sometimes associated with childhood dissociation. These therapy dolls are not yet available on her website, but she is expecting them to be available in the coming months. So stay tuned and watch out for those. She also has a workbook available on her website to be used with therapists who have also gone through her training. So she's got a training that's going to go into more depth on childhood dissociation that should soon be available on demand. So we'll also link that website then that training will be available in October. So again, stay tuned depending on when you're listening to this so that you can uh, check out her training. I know I want to as well. And you'll see that, that Karen has just a wealth of knowledge and training and she's trained in psychodynamic play therapy, theraplay training, dyadic developmental psychotherapy. And uh, her her knowledge around this topic is, is going to just help expand your ways of thinking around it. And I can't wait for you to be, um, to have access to these tools too, as they become available. So without further ado, enjoy my interview with Karen. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Hello, Karen. Welcome. I am so delighted to be joining you in conversation today so we can talk more about childhood dissociation, which is something I know you've come to focus on in your work, and I'm really interested in this topic And I'm sure our listeners and viewers are going to be as well. In fact, I posted in our Facebook group that I was interviewing you and they already had some really thoughtful questions that I know we'll we'll get into today. Um, But 
first, I'm we're also interested in who you are. And I would love for you to share an attachment memory that just feels really important to who you are and your work. So could you start us off with that, please? All right. Well, nice to see you again, Jenna. And yeah, the memory I have that's important to me is just like, you know, cuddles with my grandmother. She was just one of the most cuddly people. And I just think, you know, cuddles are so regulating and they're so holding and they're so affirming. So that that's one of my favorite attachment memories. Mm. That just helped settle my nervous system a little bit because I was feeling, you know, the the interview jitters and also made me think, uh, you know, bringing your grandma into this space, but it also made me bring my grandma and, and think of my attachment memories. So thank you for making me feel all warm and tingly. Um, but let, so let's continue with your journey. How is it that, tell us more about who you are and how is it that you came to focus more on childhood dissociation? Okay, so it's a bit of a long story, but I'll try and make it as short as possible. So I'm trained as an educational psychologist um, and I trained in South Africa. So the way the training works there, it's sort of like a bit of a mixture of educational psychology or I think in America it's called school psychology um, and then a bit of clinical psychology as well. So I learned how to assess children, how to support them in school, how to support teachers, but also how to do therapy with children. Children. My original training was in um, family therapy, play therapy, so psychodynamic play therapy, um, and a little bit of CBT um, kind of, yeah, that was thrown in as well. So that was my original training. And then as I worked with children and, uh, and also worked with adults as well, because that was part of my training, um, what became very clear for me was that attachment is often at the heart of things. Um, and so that led me into looking at attachment-based therapies. So I became a certified theraplay therapist. And to support my adult clients, I went into sensory motor psychotherapy as well. And I've done other, other trainings around all of this. So just really to kind of see where I was not meeting clients' needs and where I could support them better. And then I thought, okay, I'm kind of there. Um, mm -hmm. I've got all, you know, filled all the holes um, and I can, I can really support clients. Um, and so I had this little girl that I had for a theraplay. And she'd been adopted and she had lovely adoptive parents. They were just lovely people. And in the beginning, the theraplay sessions were just going brilliantly. And then as time went by, um, and I'll explain what was happening, but I didn't know what was happening at the time. She would come into the therapy room. She would engage in some of the theraplay activities. And then we'd get to a point where she'd just start screaming. And one of the worst things that would happen is she'd lie on the floor on her back with her arms outstretched and she'd just shout, mummy, 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 mummy. And her adoptive mum would then come to, to, you know, approach her to, to pick her up and cuddle her because her, her daughter was calling for her. And as soon as she came near her, she'd kick her away. But at the same time, she, was, she still had her arms outstretched and was just calling for her. And she would just spend most of the session like that just screaming. 
So it was horrible for this little girl. Um, she was clearly very distressed. It was incredibly distressing for this adoptive mum who wasn't sure how to support this little girl. And it was very distressing for me because it didn't matter what I did, how much supervision I had, session after session, at some point this would happen in, in various forms, but that's just one example of it. And I had done Janina Fisher's training um, she has a, a model called trauma-informed stabilization treatment, and that's for adults. So I've been using it with my adult clients. It's brilliant therapy, um, but it hadn't occurred to me that I could, you know, apply that to a child. And it, I suddenly realized this little girl was dissociating. And dissociation is a complicated thing. Different people have different ideas about what it is. Mm-hmm. But the way I understand it is that it's um, we dissociate into our survival defenses. So this little girl was dissociating into her attachment cry, which was her arms outstretched and calling for her mum because she wanted to be comforted. But at the same time, her fight um, defense was kicking her mum away because she needed to, that part didn't trust this new mum, because she'd been taken away from her biological mum, had a foster placement, had another foster placement, and then was a placed with so then was placed with her adoptive parents. Yes. She had a number of ruptures in her attachments. So that mm-hmm. fight response was protecting her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of adaptive strategies that this little girl was using and it and it also sounds like you kind of identified this gap in your knowledge and skills and what was working well for adults it was like how do i then apply this to this little girl that you were also feeling very distressed and and like is what am i what is this working which i think we've all felt when we can't make sense of behaviors and we and we can feel like that as parents caregivers therapists teachers all of that in our work um and you also talked about the definition of dissociation so let's break this down a little bit more you mentioned the attachment cry and the the fight um can you can you share more about the different parts of dissociation, how you understand it in your work? Hmm, sure. So for me, it's it's very much based on Janina Fisher's work because she she was my trainer and, and it just works so well with adults. And she, she's based it on a number of different models, but one of the primary models is the structural dissociation model. So the structural dissociation model says that basically when we traumatized, we will then have a, a part of us that can get on with normal life. Yeah, so it can kind of manage going, if we're a child, going to school, playing, um, kind of getting on with our chores. If we're an adult, it's the part of us that can kind of look after our kids, go to work, do the shopping, all of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So that part still functions and kind of gets on with normal life. And then we have these survival defenses that kick in. And the survival defenses are fight, flight, freeze, submit, and attachment cry. And they they start to kind of manifest in their own ways. So they kind of just kind of operate independently of each other, and they will do what they can to protect us. 
And this often happens in children because if they've had some kind of rupture in their attachment, um, what will happen is that the attachment system will trigger the defensive system. And this is really the work of Giovanni Liotti. Um, He was saying that that kind of disorganized attachment will always lead to some form of dissociation where you have this part that kind of gets on with normal life and then these these parts that that operate independently so the fight response in children so obviously in adults it it works a bit differently but in children it's often when kids will um, scream They'll hit, they'll kick, they'll bite, they'll spit. They'll want to destroy things. They'll rip things up. Those are kind of the, the sort of behaviors of the fight response. And it's just that, that defense mechanism trying to protect the child from being hurt. If yeah. they're going to the flight response, then they'll, um, they t- tend to kind of run away. Um, or they'll, they'll retreat and hide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the more you try and get them out from wherever they're hiding, the the further back they will retreat. Um, And it can, as as they sort of grow and develop, it can become a form of anxiety. So they'll become quite OCD about things and they'll want to make sure that things are kind of like perfect and lined up and whatnot. Bree's response is fear. So that's just fear. And it's basically that sort of deer in the headlights response. So if if some kind of something happens like, you know, a deer, a car, a car headlights come towards it and it's not sure what this is, it goes into this freeze response. And that response is, I would argue, not a shutdown response, which is often what people think it is. It's not a dorsal vagal collapse. It's quite an active response because although the body is frozen in, in, you know, into space or whatever, it's frozen rigid, it, it's still a lot of tension in the body to keep mm-hmm. it in that frozen space that requires energy to freeze the body. If it was a dorsal vagal collapse, that person would just kind of collapse to the floor. And also the eyes are very aware they're taking in information and so are the ears because that freeze response is almost like well what is this and what am i going to do next am i going to go into fight or am i going to go into flight and then the submit response is also an animal defense so animals will often go into a submit response and that's like just to show that they're not a threat so in children, what happens is they tend to be incredibly helpful mm. and that's how they protect themselves. So that, well, that's not how they protect themselves. That's how the defense protects them. Right. Yeah. And it's also like the defense that tries to make that child a really good girl or a good boy. So yeah. really helpful, not a threat, very valuable. And then attachment cry is that cry, you know, babies, it's attachment cry most of the time, yeah, and that attachment cry is to get the parents or the caregivers' attention to support that baby, so to to meet their needs. Are they cold? Are they hungry? Are they lonely? Um, So what happens if, for whatever reason, those needs aren't met, that attachment cry persists, and it ends up, manifesting in a child that's really needy, that struggles with separation anxiety, 
they become like these little shadows and they follow the parents around all the time or they follow their teachers around all the time. So those are, those are the, the five basic survival defenses. And then just because I found it really helpful, I have added in two additional ones. So this is based on the work of Dan Hughes, and he's a very well-known attachment therapist. And he says that when children's attachment needs aren't met appropriately for whatever reason, the way they cope is by becoming quite controlling. Mm -hmm. So it's like I'm in control. I'll meet my needs. I don't trust adults to do this for me. And if we also look at the work of Lyons Ruth and her colleagues, um, they found that children with disorganized attachment become quite controlling in middle childhood. So this is before they hit adolescence. So it's also just that way of managing that horrible um, feeling inside of that disorganized attachment. So it's a little bit different to Janina Fisher's model because Janina would say that control is an aspect of the fight response, and I don't disagree with her. But for children, that's quite difficult for them to, to understand mm -hmm. because when they're in a fight response, they're usually quite angry because that's the, the emotion that the fight response has. But the control response isn't often angry. It's often just really quite stubborn. And it doesn't feel the same to children because they're quite concrete. They're not as abstract as, a, as a, we are. So this is I've made it a separate part to help them understand that. Mm. And then I've also added in shame, which is part of Dan Hughes's work as well. And he said that, you know, when children's basic needs aren't met appropriately, because they're so egocentric, they feel that there is something wrong with them. And that's why their needs aren't being met or haven't been met. Um, and also just their life experiences. So when they are dissociating into these different defenses, they end up being punished for them often because, you know, if they're hitting like a sibling or they're hitting a teacher, they'll often get disciplined for that, even though they're not really in control of this. So that then when they go back into their sort of selves and the defense isn't being activated, then they feel shamed or ashamed because they weren't able to control that behavior. So I've often um, heard comments from children, I just wish there was something, you know, better with my brain. There's something wrong with my brain. I wish it could be fixed. Um, I'm not a good girl. I'm not a good boy. So there's that shame. And again, Janina would say shame is part of the submit defense. But submit in children is very helpful. It's trying to be a good girl or boy. And shame is a, is a horrible, overwhelming feeling of there's something really wrong with me. So, again, I've, I've separated them because they don't feel the same for children. So it becomes quite confusing if I have them as part of those, you know, if I have shame as part of submit and control as part of fight. Okay. That is really helpful. And I appreciate how you normalize these defensive states and not only normalize, but they all have these very important duties to protect this child and to keep this child safe. And it's 
sounds like it's our work then of the adults to help them then understand, give language and understanding to these different parts so that hopefully we can, you know, bypass that shame, that this isn't something you have to feel ashamed about, that the your brain is actually, there's nothing wrong with it. There, your brain is actually doing what it's supposed to, to do to try to keep yeah. you safe. Um, so that's really helpful. And that was one of the questions that somebody asked in the Facebook group is how does dissociation look different in children than it does in adults? And I, and I think you really, uh, illustrated that. Is there anything else you would, would say to that question, Karen? Mm-hmm. Well, I think mostly what people think when they think about dissociation is they think that it's, it's somebody kind of spacing out or zoning out or like they just collapsing. And that can certainly be an aspect of dissociation. So sometimes that zoning out might be the freeze response. Sometimes the zoning out might be um, uh, the flight response. It's kind of like that internal flight away into fantasy or into another world. Um, And then there is, for some children and adults who are completely overwhelmed, and this does happen, unfortunately, in cases of severe abuse, they will then go into this dorsal vagal collapse um, where they it looks like they're sleeping, but they're not sleeping. It's it's that that kind of um, shutdown, mm-hmm. sort of feigned death response. So that that can happen, but generally it's this these very primitive defenses that that happen in children. And because children aren't as sophisticated as we are, they come out in their very raw form in these behaviors. So that's much more common. Okay. And I think we don't understand it as dissociation. We understand it as the child being really naughty. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I think we can assign a lot of intentionality to these behaviors. Yeah. They're this child's acting out, being bad, pushing my buttons, all of those things. And they're really just biologically trying to survive. Absolutely. And sometimes obviously children are naughty, you know, they'll kind of look at you and then they'll like punch their brother, you know, and that's quite intentional. The The difference, and I think this is important to kind of look at it for me, you know, when I look at at what what's it intentional kind of pushing boundaries kind of behavior and what is dissociative behavior is that the intentional behavior it's kind of you can see sort of the thought process in it whereas this dissociative behavior kind of just kind of comes out of the blue it's out of proportion it doesn't make sense so it might be like the parent asks the child to put their shoes on and suddenly this child is just screaming and lying on the floor and, you know, it's just out of control. It's it's out of proportion to what was asked um, and it goes on and on and on. And for me, those are sort of clues that that's more dissociative than that child being naughty. Okay. If you can say there's such a thing as being mm-hmm. naughty. Yeah. Thank you for that. So... It really sounds like it's this continuum of of different strategies. And for our listeners and viewers who are interested more in hearing about the dorsal vagal piece, because I think I did think of it in, in more simplistic 
terms. And so we we have an episode with with Deb Dana that that you can learn more about the polyvagal theory. But the way you're explaining it is much more rich and, and nuanced too in these different defensive states, and um, you know that they can kind of become their own um, parts and their own you know separate part of functioning from this kind of normal everyday, like you said, the child that goes to school and can keep it together and until they start to feel threatened, whether that's a real threat or some, you know, something more likely something from the past and their attachment story, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So it's generally an implicit memory. Mm-hmm. So an implicit memory is something that's sort of, it's stored in the right brain. It's very unconscious and it'll just be something that triggers that memory that will then trigger a survival part to, to take over. Okay. So if we bring a little more of the neuroscience into it, you know, speaking of right brain and left brain, you know, young children are very right brain dominated. And so when there's been attachment trauma and other forms of trauma that they then become even more kind of compartmentalized from, from left as the left brains continuing to develop and kind of that bottom top development and then can become, you know, stuck or overactivated in these defensive states. Is that, is that, am I understanding that correctly, Karen? Yeah, pretty much, Jenna. So basically the way our brains develop is that we're not left brain dominant when we, you know, when we're small children or infants, so we're right brain dominant and we're right brain dominant for quite a long period of time. So this is sort of, spurts of of development in the left hemisphere so when we develop language there's like a little bit of left hemisphere dominance and then as we enter adolescence we become more left hemisphere dominant but it takes a really long time for that left um, hemisphere to develop so so the parts are contained or they exist within the right hemisphere and i think this this is the difficulty because that's um that's more unconscious, it's more implicit memory, whereas our rational thinking side of ourselves is in the left hemisphere. And I think, you know, the, the mistake we make as adults when we're dealing with children is that we kind of think they're little mini asses mm-hmm. and they think like we do. And that um, if we rationalize with them, they'll be rational. So children will struggle with that in general just because of the way our brains develop. But when a child's been traumatized, um, they're going to struggle with it even more. And so if if a child's dissociating, we try and kind of go, we reason with them and we're like, come on, you know, we didn't ask you to do anything horrible. We just asked you to put your shoes on. Um, You know, you're not going to be able to rationalize with these parts because they're housed within the right hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So what they really need is um, particular methods of of working with them and a lot of co-regulation, down-regulation, um, and we do that through specific ways of talking and through specific somatic strategies. And I'd love to get into those a little bit more too. Before we do, on the extreme end of dissociation and and what some people may think of when they hear dissociation is dissociative identity disorder, which 
is actually very rare. So I think it might be helpful for you to touch on this a little bit more too, to help our, our listeners kind of distinguish with what we're meaning with dissociation versus kind of the extreme end of the continuum with dissociative identity disorder. Okay. So again, I, I, I can only go from what I've seen with clients in my experience. And, I, you know, I go into schools a lot and observe children with various difficulties. And the model that makes the most sense to me is the structural dissociation model. And it's got three levels to it. So the first level is primary structural dissociation, which is when a child or an adult has experienced one traumatic event. And so they still have that part of them that continues with normal life. And then they have another part that will um, house whatever the trauma is and all the, the emotions and the sensations and the fragments of memory around that trauma. Um, so that, that would be um, primary structural dissociation. What I've been talking about is secondary structural dissociation. So that's, in my opinion, very common for traumatized children, so children who've not always had their attachment needs met or children who have had experiences of abuse or neglect. Um, and that's where you've got the going on with normal life part and then you've got the fight, flight, freeze, submit and attachment cry parts. Then the next level is tertiary structural dissociation. And this is where the part that gets on with normal life starts to split into different parts. So there'll be parts that kind of get on with work or school. There'll be parts that are very social and that's their job. There'll be parts that kind of get on with chores and they all have different kind of roles. So that part starts to split into different parts. And then the survival parts start to split as well. And they start to get, you know, have like person that, personalities, not really, but they'll have names, ages, and preferences, but they will still be along the, the lines of the fight response. You'll get parts that are very keen on protecting, and you'll get the flight response, which are very anxious parts, and so on. So, And that usually happens when there's been extreme abuse. So that person in their childhood hasn't been able to escape or have any support around them. That's usually what causes it. Okay. And the way it gets portrayed in our, our media is, is, you know, usually these awful examples and, yeah. and the way you just described it is much more normalizing and, you know, makes it, it makes sense. It makes good sense that that people have had to develop these these different parts to you know try to find some sort of way to resolve the this internal conflict of you know I, I need to feel safe but especially from a young child's perspective the person that's supposed to protect me and help me feel safe is also a source of a fear. Absolutely. I, I think another example that you know, gets a bad rap are borderline people with borderline personality disorder. And I know there's some, some research that suggests that, that young children with disorganized attachment can often go on to um, develop borderline personality disorder. But so can you say more about that, Karen? Yeah. So again, 
you know, this is very much informed by Janina Fisher, and I agree with her. Um, borderline personality disorder is, it shouldn't be called a disorder, nor should ident- uh, dissociative identity disorder. Right. They, they're not disorders, really. They are coping mechanisms. And so with borderline um, personality, it's really a, a structure that that child develops in order to cope with ha- not having their attachment needs met appropriately. And then that becomes through their implicit memory. So it's unconscious um, how they cope with life, how they approach relationships, how they manage their internal world. So, yeah, it's it's not a disorder, in my opinion. It's a way of coping. I agree. Yes. And when we look at it like that, again, it, we bring more understanding and compassion to these very adaptive ways of being, even if it presents as challenging in our relationships and when we're interacting with, with children and adults, it's, it's what they've needed to do to, to cope, to survive. So thank you for that, those explanations. So let's, let's go back to this little girl that you started with and can you elaborate more on once you were able to give more name and understanding to what she was exhibiting, how did that then change your therapeutic approach? And, and what are some, some strategies that the adults can use with children who are dissociating? Okay. So when I identified it, I was like, how on earth am I going to approach this with a little girl? Because she, when she started working with me, she was four. So at this stage, she's about just, you know, on the cusp of four or five years old. So she's very young and very concrete in her thinking. And I've got this model that I've been talking to adults about that is quite um, complicated to understand. So I was like, how on earth am I going to help her understand what's going on inside her? So the first thing I did um, before I did anything was talk to her parents And I explained what I thought was happening. And I explained the whole structural dissociation and the different parts and how they were manifesting in the therapy sessions. And they were like, yes, this makes sense. We can see that. And we can also see how it's manifesting at home as well. Mm -hmm. But they were really on board for going for this and giving it a go. So then I was like, well, how am I going to introduce it to her? So what I did is I created a doll. And the doll I called Diddy, which is in sort of homage to people who struggle with this. So I called it D-I-D, Dolly. So it's Diddy. Yes, got to have fun with it. Yeah, I got to have fun with it. And it's just, you know, um, a a homage to, to, you know, the people who struggle with this. So I created this, this doll, and what I did is I took it in to explain to her what was happening so I could show it to her in a very concrete visual form. And I said to her, I think I have a good idea what's going on. I know you've been really struggling. You know, we've had these sessions where you've just been screaming and you've not felt good. I didn't tell her that I wasn't feeling good or that mum wasn't feeling good either because I didn't want to lay that on her. But, you know, it's it's obviously made me feel like a complete failure as a therapist. And I was definitely failing her up to that point. Um, 
So I showed her this doll and I showed her specifically that example that I told you about where she had her arms out calling for her mum and she was kicking her away at the same time. And I said that there's this attach part. I don't call it attachment cry for children because it's just too long a phrase. So it's just better to keep it simple. And I said, this is what the attach part does. The attach part wants to keep adults close. It wants to make sure that adults are looking after us. It wants adults to give us a cuddle. That's its job. And then we've got the fight part. And the fight part's job is to push people away and and keep you and the attached part safe. So I showed her using this doll um, how how that was playing out. And and then I explained all the different parts and different scenarios that had happened in the therapy sessions with each of these parts, specifically how it related to her. And the relief on this little girl's face is something that I will remember forever because I think she just felt, oh, this makes sense. Somebody gets what's going on inside of me and I understand what's going on inside of me too now. And what that did is it just pushed our therapy forward. So from being stuck in this horrible space, you know, where I felt like a failure, this child was in distress, her parents were in distress to being able to move forward with the therapy and have something that we could work with so that she could get her attachment needs met because she so desperately needed that. And therapy is a fantastic way of doing that. But we had a way of working with these defense mechanisms. And the way I worked with the defense mechanisms is a, is a combination of my sensory motor training, my therapy training, um, and my dyadic developmental psychotherapy training. So I would talk about all of the parts. I would sometimes talk to the parts. Sometimes I'd talk about the parts with her mum if it was too difficult for her in that moment to kind of come back, you know, so she'd be blended with a part. So blending is a term that Janine Fisher uses, which is where um, the the going on with normal life self is then kind of becoming the part, and it's the, it's not like separate from the part. Okay, it's, so it's a way to kind of integrate. Yeah, it's not integrating. You want actually want them to be separate from each other. That's okay. what causes the sort of integration in a way. So mm. um, Dan Siegel talks about um, that things need to be different. We need to understand that we have different aspects to ourselves um, and we need to understand those different aspects. And then the sort of integration is through understanding and linking rather than that we become this one whole thing. Mm. So when, when somebody's blended with a part they can't, they can't manage that part. That part is taking over and that part is kind of running the show. So when they unblend from that part, then you've got that prefrontal cortex, you've got the left brain online, and then you've got, it can help to manage what's going on in the, in the survival defense, if that, if that makes more sense. Got it. Yes, that does make sense. Uh, and I would think the dolls are a way to help do that too, to kind of externalize it more yes. so that you can understand it. Yeah, absolutely. So the dolls I can use to regulate the child. I can visually do little stories. I can talk to the dolls. These are different things I can do with them to, to help with that process and to downregulate that part. 
Wonderful. You also talked about how you felt like a failure in working with this little girl. Again, a feeling that I know most of us can relate to in, in our work and caregiving. And so I appreciate that vulnerability, but that also makes me wonder, you know, how do we as adults, because our nervous systems talk to each other. And so if her nervous system is in these defensive states, it's more likely to elicit that in us. And so what did you learn to do, Karen, to regulate your own system and stay grounded when you're working with clients who are in these defensive states? Good question. So again, my therapy training has has helped me to be very regulated. Um, so I, I can, you know, downregulate my own system through that. So I can notice when I'm starting to kind of get activated and then go, okay, I need to kind of downregulate. But also just understanding that it's parts, I think helps a huge amount that this is a part and we need to help this part. So I think, you know, initially it was just me using my own somatic strategies um, to, to regulate myself, even though I was feeling like a failure. I was doing, you know, my best to stay regulated within the session. But once I knew it was parts, that helped me to, to manage it better for the client and for myself, because then I had strategies I could use to manage each part, as opposed to feeling... I don't quite know what to do here. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that's really been a theme so far of what we've been talking about is when we bring understanding into these parts, these defensive states, that again, it kind of helps you then externalize from that. Rather than getting sucked in, you're able to take a step back and remain in your prefrontal cortex and remain more regulated and, and, and curious about what are these parts trying to communicate right now? Absolutely. And curiosity is, you've, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Curiosity is such a, a powerful thing for us as therapists to have. It's just being curious because if we're curious, that, that's not scary. Curiosity mm-hmm. is not scary. Yes, mm-hmm. curiosity is like I'm interested, I'm intrigued, I want to know more, I want I want to learn more. So that that's really helpful. The other thing that's really helpful is that children will often trigger into a number of these parts at the same time. So being able to learn how to identify all the parts that have been triggered and then how you're going to manage each one of those parts. That's something I found incredibly helpful because otherwise it is very overwhelming. So, for example, that little girl, she had just triggered into two parts. Mm-hmm. So at the time I was feeling that was overwhelming, but I've had children who can trigger into four parts at the same time. And that's even more overwhelming. So understanding what's happening, which parts have been triggered and knowing, okay, I've got strategies to regulate each of these parts um, makes it much more manageable. So it kind of is like, I suppose, having a roadmap or a, way, a structure in, in which to work And that becomes less overwhelming, I find, for myself as a therapist. Can you elaborate on the the child that where four parts are present at once? Because that does feel overwhelming. What, What do you do to work with that child in that situation? Okay. So 
If there's a child where there's a number of different parts triggering at the same time, if they're all triggering right then and there, exactly at the same time, what I have to do is then I'll try and figure out, and again, being a therapy, therapist and having done sensory motor training, um, I've also done something called SPIM30, which is Rolf Vocht's um, therapy for dissociation. So I've got a number of tools in my toolbox. What I'll tend to do is I will figure out some kind of activity that we can do that's going to meet a number of these different parts' needs. So, for example, if a child is going into a fight response, so they're kind of pushing a parent away and they're going into a attach response, so they want the parent close to them, and then they're going into shame at the same time. What I'll do is I'll think of a fun activity. So it might be a, an example of a theraplay activity, which is push me over, pull me up. So I'll start structuring it and I'll say, right, um, and, and, and another part, sorry, that might be part of all of this is control. So I wouldn't take the control away from the child. I'm not going to change all that behavior, but I'm just going to structure it. So I'll go, right, um, mom's going to sit here, you're going to sit there and you're going to push mom over and I'm going to, I'll put structure in and I'll count, you know, one, two, three, push. And now you're going to pull mom up. So I'm still using that attach parts need to pull and the fight parts need to push away. And the way I'm mediating the shame is I'm making this into a fun activity. It's not something that's horrible and bad and you need to stop it right now. No, we're not going to stop it. We're going to do something fun around it that's going to meet those parts' needs and mm. that the child still has some element of control because I'm not going, okay, we're going to do something completely different. Yes, we're going to meet the attached parts' needs, but we're going to do it in a different way. So we're going to have a cuddle because right then that's not what's happening. And we're going to start like punching a punch bag because that's not what the fight part wants to do then. The fight part wants to push away, not punch. So that's how I'd use a whole load of activity. Oh, sorry, one activity to manage a whole load of parts that are triggering at exactly the same time. But there's also something that I find, which I call trigger chains, which is one part will trigger another part, which will trigger another part, which will trigger another part. And in that instance, yeah, so let's say the attached part has then triggered the fight part. So let's say the child wants the parent's attention. So, and the parent's not giving them their attention. So then the fight part will come in and it might punch the parent. And then the parent will tell the child off and say, stop it. That's not okay. And then the control part will come in and it's now like kind of colluding with the fight part and is punching more. And then the child gets told off even more. So then you've got the shame part. And then that child will kind of curl into a ball and hide their, their face in shame. I There's like no that. Yeah. I like that term trigger chains. It, it makes me think kind of like a, like a domino effect. Yes. Yeah. So there's no point in dealing with the attachment part that started it all. We've got, what, we've got to deal with what's happening in the moment. And in the moment, we've got the shame response. So then I'll, uh, the way I work with shame is I tend to normalize things and I'll just talk about how we all have shame and how, of course, if this has happened, that might make you feel that way. 
And then I'll say, but that's not really what's, you know, what's going on. You haven't been naughty. It's basically that these parts are trying to get mummy or daddy's attention. So I'll deal with that. Then I might need to kind of talk about the fighters, sorry, control. And this is what control was doing and control was doing it because this is what fight wanted. So I normally don't necessarily have to meet each one of those parts needs specifically. It's usually meet the part that's triggered last, talk to the parts in between and explain what's happened and then meet the initial one, which is the attached part, which really wanted some closeness or some attention. I like that formula. Okay. So let's talk more about the tools and resources because you, that example just was so rich of the beautiful work that you're doing and the way you've come to understand these parts. Um, And even though you've had a lot of training in these different therapy modalities, even if you haven't had all this, this training, we can learn to better speak the language of the nervous system and these, these defenses. Um, So can you tell us more about the tools or resources? You mentioned the dolls. I know you have a a workbook. Um, Where, where can we learn more? What have you developed, Karin? So I've recently recorded a training with the Academy of Therapy Wisdom where I've kind of tried to distill it um, so that any therapist who's had any kind of training will be able to learn about the parts, learn about dissociation, and then learn specific techniques for each of the parts. And there's quite a lot of different techniques because each part will manifest in different ways. So I've created that training, which will be available um, hopefully from mid-October this year onwards. Oh. It'll, be, it'll be on demand. Wonderful. In I terms love, of... I yes. want to go. I want to take it. <laughs> In terms of uh, the workbook that's available. So the workbook is just to give structure. The reason why I developed the workbook was um, at an adult client Uh, that it was really helpful for them to see this in a very concrete way. So I used it with them um, during COVID because I was working online. And also I was working with a little boy online. So I used it with him as well because I wasn't in the room with him. So I needed something to, to have a structure that we could work with. Uh, that was concrete, that they could look at and that they could interact with. But the workbook is to be used with a therapist who's who's done the training. Um, it's not like a self-help type workbook. It's it's a, an aid to therapy. So it's just a way to structure that. And it certainly can go with the dolls as well. So it's it's it can be used standalone or it can be used with the dolls. Um, the dolls, which I've created, and I can I can show you them. So yes, there's please. <laughs> so there's so would that Mike. be the fight part doll? That's, that's the fight doll. Okay. And then this is flight. So flight's running. Ah. And then I've got freeze. Okay, kind of this like gray. Yeah, just that yeah. frozen. Mm-hmm. And then I've got submit. He's kind of floppy. Yeah. Yeah. And then I've got the little attached part. Mm. 
And each of these parts will, um, they've got like a little pouch at the back to show when they're not activated. So you can just fold them into their little pouch. So it's a, a concrete way of showing the child um, or adult, because um, some people will be using these with adult clients, that that part is not activated. It's not triggered in that particular situation. So it just folds up into a little ball. And they, <laughs> and they all fit into Diddy. So Diddy. this is Diddy. <laughs> yeah. um, all the parts. Who holds all the parts. And if Diddy doesn't have the parts, Diddy's very flat and two-dimensional. But when all the parts are inside of Diddy, then Diddy has a lot more substance to him or her. So for all of our listeners, you'll have to go to our YouTube channel too to see this because these dolls are really cool. So then, whoops, Diddy's got a lot more substance. Wow. So I don't have shame and control just yet because um, it has cost a lot to make these dolls. Um, so it's just for financial reasons. I'll just have little cardboard cutouts for now. Um, but if people are interested, I will be making shame and control to go in as well. And there'll be space within Diddy for that. Um, so, yeah, the dolls I'm hoping will be available from the end of this year, from the end of 2023 onwards. Okay. But certainly people don't need to have the dolls to do the therapy. It's just a resource I made for myself. I've put a lot of thought into them. They, everything I've done with them um, has a purpose. But there's certainly ways that people can um, get figures. So they can use um, specific toys. They could use sand tray if they do sand tray therapy. If they do art therapy, they could get the child to draw the different parts and then use those in their sessions. So it's just a resource I've made. It's not essential by any means, um, but it just made my therapy a lot easier. It's really neat. I can't wait till they're available. Just looking at them. And I, and I like the reminder that we can use uh, having these concrete representations. So if you don't have the dolls, thinking about what else you can use, um, I think is really important. But when, just looking as you showed them, I, again, could feel my own response of just, like I said, the theme of, of our talk today, Karen, is like, Oh, this makes sense. And now not only do I have language for it, but I have something that I can see that represents the way that my, my body, my nervous system and physio physiology is trying to help me adapt and cope. So um, such a gift that that will be available soon um, and your training, I'm sure. So we'll make sure that we, we link all of that, those resources in our show notes. Um, is there anything else? I mean, gosh, I, I don't even want this interview to end because this has been so, so thought provoking and I've learned so much. Um, but is there anything else that you would like to share Karen before we end our time? I suppose the only thing I'd like to share is just to give people encouragement to know that there are there are ways of working with this. Um, learn about it. Um, if they read the, the book um, on um, structural dissociation, it's by Funder Hart, um, Neuhaus and Kathy Steele. If they look into Janina Fisher's training, they can learn a bit more. She's also written a book 
um, you know, the, just to start learning a bit more about this. Unfortunately, there isn't loads out there, but, you know, people are starting to look at this and just learning more about it is incredibly empowering. And um, Neuhaus said that, you know, dissociations should, it's always going to be part of any kind of post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever it is. So it should be something that we're looking at. And I think that knowledge is growing. So it's just for mm -hmm. people to go out there and learn more about it. Because when you do know about it, it, it just enhances your therapy so much. Absolutely. Embrace it, understand it, and work with it. I love it. And I loved our conversation today, Karen. Thank you so much for, for being with me. And I look forward to any ways I can continue to, to learn from you. Well, thank you, Jenna. It was lovely chatting to you. Take care. You take care too. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. And join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. For additional resources and training opportunities, visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of attachment theory. Attachment Theory in Action.